Welcome to Improbable Walks, a podcast that brings you to the streets of Paris wherever you are. My name is Lisa Passold, and I'm a writer and traveler who loves to walk in the city of light. Every episode, we step into history by strolling down a different block of the city, exploring buildings and people of the past and of the present. Let's step into history today by focusing on the former Rue Traversine, which is now named for the French playwright Molière. The Rue Molière used to be longer, but was truncated during Haussmann's renovations in the 19th century. Today, it runs from the side of the Palais Royal to the Avenue de l'Opéra. We're starting in Place Mireille, named for the 20th century performer Mireille Hartouche. The place is more like a traffic triangle, but right now it's being used as outdoor pandemic seating by a restaurant across the street, so the little tables really cheer the place up. Mireille was born in Paris with a Polish father and a British mother. She started performing at age six. As a starlet, she crossed the Atlantic and appeared in films with silent stars such as Buster Keaton. She returned to France to become a popular singer and songwriter, fleeing the city during the occupation to work for the resistance. When in Paris, she lived with her husband mere blocks from here in the same building as her friend Jean Cocteau in the Palais Royal. So I like to think that she'd be pleased with this location, sharing the stage, so to speak, with the greatest French playwright of them all, Molière. Right here on the angled corner, Facing Place Mireille at the beginning of Rue Molière, there's a large statue of the seated playwright, gorgeously dressed, pen and notebook in hand. In fact, Molière died around the corner from here in 1673. The house is now demolished. The statue was paid for by national subscription, usually used to get money for military statues, so this cultural event was a big deal at the time. The statue was inaugurated in 1844. The statue is by Bernard-Gabriel Sur, and the two women also in the sculpture, at Molière's feet, so to speak, represent la comédie légère et la comédie sérieuse, and they're by a different artist, James Pradier. You'll also notice, looking at the statue today, that there is some contemporary art by our local street artist, Space Invader tastefully color-coordinated with the stone on the background of the statue. Now, this statue was originally a fountain. Nowadays, the lion spouts are strictly decorative, but it was built on the site of a fountain that served for water for this entire neighborhood. Now, light and dark, or comedy and tragedy, are, of course, two aspects of Molière's work. And each of the statue women holds a list of Molière's plays. But the great thing about Molière is that his plays are never strictly funny or sad. And even at his funniest, Molière always had a fairly tragic target in mind. 
In fact, the playwright wrote, the duty of comedy is to correct men by amusing them. Molière was born in 1622. His real name was Jean-Baptiste Poquelin. He was the child of Paris merchants, and at the age of 21, he became an actor. And like so many performers, he found it difficult to make ends meet. Within a few years, he ran into trouble with debt and left the city. His tiny theater troupe toured the provinces before returning to Paris in 1658 to work for the flashy 20-year-old sun king, Louis XIV. Just as English is sometimes referred to as the language of Shakespeare, French is often called la langue de Molière or the language of Molière. Although the two playwrights, Shakespeare and Molière, lived very different lives at slightly different time periods, I find it interesting that both men are great writers for the stage, encompassing broad themes, and they also worked as actors and behind the scenes trying to make their theatre companies thrive. Molière did not lounge around waiting for the perfect moment to write. He survived despite accusations of heresy from the church and fickle support from royalty. Tragically, Molière died from a hemorrhage probably because of tuberculosis. His collapse was brought on by too much work and no rest. This collapse ironically began while he was performing the part of the hypochondriac lead in his play The Malade Imaginaire, though Molière did not die on stage, as is often rumored. In fact, he was carried to a house on Rue Richelieu, just around the corner. The building is now demolished, and that's why this fountain was the perfect location for a commemorative statue. It's said that Molière died without holy sacrament and without renouncing his then scandalous profession of being an actor. This meant that he was buried without ceremony at night. You can visit his tomb in Père Lachaise. Molière wrote, Life is a tragedy to those who feel and a comedy to those who think. And I do think he found himself both crying and laughing most of the time. This small street is now named for the playwright, and as we stroll down towards the Boulevard de l'Opéra, I want to imagine that we're walking through this muddy but fashionable street just two years after Molière's tragic death. Because in the late 1670s, this is where a very early couturière had her shop. Her name was Madame Ducreux and she made fabulous clothes for the aristocrats right here in the Rue Molière. Before the year 1675, high fashion in Paris was largely controlled by a fashion guild, the Maître Tailleur, i.e. the Master Tailors. Now, all Master Tailors were male. However, in 1675, Louis XIV created a brand new fashion guild, the maîtresses couturières, who were, of course, women. They, this allowed women to rise to full tailor status as mistress seamstresses. And the word we use today for haute couture, in fact, comes from the maîtresses couturières. 
The king's economic advisor, Colbert, was at the heart of this revolution. He wanted more guilds to stimulate French trade. There had been only 60 trade guilds in Paris, and by the time Colbert was through, there were 129. And at least with fashion, Colbert definitely succeeded. Louis XIV's court attracted visitors from around the world, giving these new French seamstresses an internationally desirable brand. By the end of 1675, 46 seamstresses were legal guild members. They were able to make what was called casual clothing for wealthy women. This became the robe de chambre at court. It was not court dress. It was a dressing gown to be worn more casually. But within a few short years, these so-called casual clothes were the fashionable norm. And they were worn by ladies of the court most of the time. The robe de chambre was a dressing gown inspired by the Japanese kimono, the more likely based on dressing gowns made by Indian tailors who were copying the Japanese styles, which then arrived in France via India. The robe de chambre could be elaborately embroidered with gold thread. It was worn with stays and a skirt which matched or contrasted, and overall it was much less restrictive to women's movements than formal court dress. In fact, the dressing gown, called a manteau or coat or mantua in Britain as they mangled the French word manteau, this is simply a robe that became the foundation of haute couture in France. We're on this street because this is where Madame Ducreux, early member of the guild, had her shop. By 1679, only a few short years after she had opened as an official seamstress, her daughter Louise had joined her as an official maîtresse couturière. Today, when you stroll down the Rue Molière, you'll see a fairly typical mix of shops, restaurants, offices, and apartments, with buildings mostly from the 19th and 20th century. But it still feels charming because the street is so narrow and calm. It's quite surprising to emerge at the end of the little Rue Molière on the busy Avenue de l'Opéra. I like to think that both Molière and Madame Ducreux would be happy to know that their street comes out nicely located between Rue Saint-Honoré and the Opera. Madame Ducreux's clothes were certainly meant to be seen. They weren't for walking along small streets. Her manteau were meant to be flaunted, worn to tea with Madame de Sévigny, accessorized with your best jewelry, and perhaps worn to impress your friends when you went to see a theater piece by the great Molière. As we finish up today, let's look up the Avenue de l'Opéra and admire the Opéra Garnier. Now, you'll notice it's unusual compared to other Parisian boulevards because there are no trees. The opera architect, Charles Garnier, insisted that the avenue remain treeless, so there was nothing obstructing the view of his architectural masterpiece. Now, in general, I'm a big fan of Garnier as an architect. However, in this case, I think he was entirely wrong about street trees when he argued with Hausmann in the designing of the street. 
Now, if you enjoyed this improbable walk, please subscribe to the podcast. For details about today's walk, please visit my website, lisapassel.com. You'll find images and further links to interest you about the history of this little tiny street in the City of Light. Thank you for listening and for stepping into history with me. Until next time, we go strolling through Paris together.